We are taking our second step today in Luke volume 3, the, uh, the journey to Jerusalem, looking at three very, very memorable moments uh, of Jesus in this book. Uh, Jesus has already set his face toward Jerusalem, meaning that he is now focused on the plan for him to die on the cross in order to pay for our sins. But Luke has not phrased it that way. He hasn't really uh, made known to us what the, what the plan is in any explicit fashion. Uh, he'll travel, Jesus will travel for months through, uh, throughout the whole region of, of uh, northern and southern Israel, both, both regions. Um, and even though Jerusalem can be reached in two days from where he's at, if he, if he decided to hustle, um, the, the narrative doesn't seem to mind that he's not going in a straight line and, uh, and that he's going to take months to get there. In fact, the, the narrative is kind of achronological. It's not really put together in, like a, uh, in order of what happened before and after. Uh, Luke doesn't seem to be bothered by that because he's really just trying to collect a whole bunch of things where all the miracles of Jesus and stuff will take a back seat and the teachings of Jesus will take more of the forefront during this journey, during this time where he's telling his disciples what it's like to belong to him and to be in his kingdom and to, uh, to be a Christian. So it's not so much about the location that he's going to, Jerusalem, but it's about the destiny. He's going toward the cross and he's going to give up his life in order to love and to save us. And he expects that his people will adopt the same spirit, that they will deny themselves, pick up their own cross, follow him daily. Uh, his time is drawing near and the disciples know that he is the Christ. They know that salvation is received by repenting of themselves, of their sin, and trusting in Jesus. And so Jesus will use the, these last few months of life before his crucifixion to refine what true faith looks like in the life of a believer. Now, last week, as he started to refine what it means to be a Christian, uh, he took a surprising stance on whom he rejects and whom he accepts. There was a Samaritan village that, uh, that said, Jesus, you can't enter here because we know you're going to Jerusalem, so we're not interested in having you around here. And so they, they rejected him, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't know his gospel, his message. They didn't know that stuff. So it was a, it was a weird kind of rejection. They didn't really reject him for who he is and what he represented. And so Jesus doesn't really reject them either. He just kind of says, ah, oh, let's move on. And it implies like maybe, maybe later someone will reach them. And then there are people who come up to Jesus and say, we'll follow you. And he's like, I don't know if you will because, you know, you're not going to be comfortable following me. You can't, you can't think your family comes before me. You can't think your career comes before me. You can't uh, think that your comfort comes before me. He, he kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they try to jump on board, but he doesn't really accept them. So he doesn't really reject this Samaritan village, and he doesn't really accept these volunteers. And then what you get is kind of this moment where he talks about these three, these three nearby cities that had seen him for years doing his teaching and his miracles and stuff. It was uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. And he says, woe to you, to these cities. He, he brings down curses on them because they knew exactly who he was. They knew exactly who he claimed to be. They knew exactly what he was capable of, what he was about. They heard his message. And week after week, for years, they knew this and they rejected him. They would not repent. And so he fully rejects them. And he says, woe to you, and the day of judgment will be worse for you than for these epically renowned wicked cities in the Old Testament. And then he turns to, uh, to 72 disciples whose names were written in the book of life, meaning they were saved. 
And he fully accepts them. He says, you repented. You see, you, you heard, you understood who I am and what the message is. You get it. And so he rejoices over them. He fully accepts them. So you kind of get this, uh, this different stance on rejection and on acceptance. It's extremely dogmatic. It's this very unyielding stance. Uh, it's this way of saying that if you, uh, you, know, you want to belong to me, you have to give everything up. And so the natural question to follow, if, uh, if you're a Jew and you're listening to this, you'd say, okay, well, Jesus, what do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. I get it. I have to, I have to be all in. Just tell me what I have to do. Uh, how do I know that I've repented? And how do I know that I'm trusting in you? You know, how, how, do, how do I know? And so that's kind of what's going to happen. Someone's going to ask that, and it's going to launch Jesus into, into certain conversations where he's trying to, uh, to differentiate between those who act like a believer and then those who are internally drawn toward Jesus and internally convicted and internally are believers. You can pretend to be, you can act like one, or you can actually internally be one. So Luke is going to show us three moments where Jesus depicts faith as something that's internal, and, uh, and it's not something external that you just do. It's not just behavior. It's not just ritual. It's very much a relationship with God, with Jesus, with, uh, with one another. So it is not transactional. It's not where, uh, where you do some good deeds, and so God owes you a good life. It's not like that. It's purely relational. It's where you love God, and so that you just live with, with that love being exercised as a natural outpouring of, of the way that you are on the inside. The structure goes like this, if you're taking notes. The first will be uh, commandments versus compassion. That'll be chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The second is uh, practical distractions versus personal devotions. That's uh, verses 38 through 42. And then the last one is reciting like chants versus relying like children. And that'll be chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. We'll spend the most time on this first point. Uh, let's talk about it. It's commandments versus compassion in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer or a scribe, a lawyer, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And I'll stop there for a second. Okay, This is the framework of the story and it's about to be followed by the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what's going to happen in the next few verses, okay? The Good Samaritan. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably come across that parable. Or even if you haven't been to church, you've at least heard that phrase maybe. There are a few things to notice in this setup, okay? Uh, this, is a, this is a lawyer that's talking to Jesus. He's an expert in the law. So sometimes he's called a scribe or expert in the law or a lawyer, whichever. Uh, the, the Jewish law was the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So this guy is uh, an expert in those five books. He is a religious scholar. And the fact that he's a lawyer means that he's met, he's, his whole purpose is to argue and sift out the meaning of the law. So he is a professional debater. 
His job was to argue the nitty-gritty of how to work, sell, uh, work out the situations where the law could be interpreted one way or another, where you have to choose between one commandment or another commandment, or the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And he's the one that's, that's supposed to get in there and help figure out which way to go. Uh, an example of that, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath if you're a Jew, a Jew right? On Saturday, uh, you're not allowed to work. And so uh, what do you do if your animal, or even worse, if your child falls into a pit? Because by Sabbath law, you're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to carry these heavy burdens and things. So lifting your child out or lifting an animal out would have been considered work. And you would have defiled yourself. You would have violated the Sabbath law. But then... The very clear intent of Scripture is that you're supposed to love one another and take care of your fellow people, especially your child or your property. So if your animal or if your, or, or if your child falls into a pit, of course you should lift them out. And so people would then argue about which one was lawful. What are you supposed to do in that situation? Lawyers didn't always agree with one another, naturally, so different schools of thought would develop. And you can understand them as different denominations. This lawyer, it says, is putting Jesus to the test, meaning he's examining Jesus. He's trying to discover what Jesus' denomination is. He's trying to go like, well, what is Jesus' theology? Which school of thought does he fall into? And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, It it, it just means he wants to see Jesus' theology. But we're not given any context here to indicate whether or not this lawyer is for or against Jesus. It seems that he's listening to Jesus. It says he he stands up and and then asks this question, which means he was sitting down listening for a while. Maybe he's a supporter. Maybe he's curious. We don't know. But the lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a a shortcut way to say that is, uh, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? But really the Jewish theology behind that is there are two ages in their minds. They, they thought there's the present age, which is the age where there's sin and brokenness, but then God will eventually send a Messiah that will kind of fix everything, and sin and brokenness will, will be done away with. Everything will be restored and made new, and Israel will be put on top of the globe. All the nations will be underneath the authority of Israel, and that will be the age to come, and it'll last forever and ever. And the Jews knew that uh, after you die, there's life after death. After you die, there will be a resurrection. Some to life in that kingdom where Israel is on top of the world. And then some to eternal punishment. They know that from Daniel 12. So this this lawyer is asking, uh, what do I have to do to get into the kingdom? Into that, that age to come where I'll be resurrected and I'll be in eternal life with the Lord. What do I have to do to be saved? In Jesus' answer, he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Right? That's how he says it in verse 26. How do you read it? What's in the law? How do you read it? Which is basically his way of saying, what's your interpretation? How do you read it? You know, like you read a passage and, and everyone goes around a circle, reads the same passage, and someone goes, well, for me, it means, and someone else goes, for me, it means, oh, to me, it means, etc. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, like you don't, you don't determine its meaning. It has a meaning. Have you discovered it? You know, for me, it means this. Who cares? That has nothing to do with whether or not that's what the author meant and, and that's what the original audience was being told. But Jesus asks this question, how do you read the law? What's your interpretation of it? 
And instead of answering the lawyer's question, because the, the, the lawyer asked, you know, how can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? How can I inherit eternal life? Instead of answering that, Jesus flips it and throws it back at the, the lawyer and says, well, what do you think that the law says you have to do? What do you think is required of you in order for you to have eternal life? He masterfully reverses the situation. Uh, he's not trying to avoid the question. In fact, he will answer the question. Um, he's not trying to avoid it, but this is going to lead to a much bigger teaching moment. And so he's kind of setting the stage for a better conversation. The lawyer answers with a, a very expected answer. His first answer is, love God with everything you are. All your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? Love God with everything you are. That comes straight out of Deuteronomy 6. That's a prayer that was recited twice a day by every Jew. That's a big deal. That was understood universally uh, in all of Israel as the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. Love God with all that you are. And then he follows it up with love your neighbor as yourself. Now, everyone's okay with the first answer because that's the most important commandment. And everyone agreed that that's the most important commandment. The second greatest commandment is where there was much disagreement. Two schools of thought had erupted by this time in Judaism. There was the school of Hallel and the school of Shammai. And uh, the two schools disagreed with each other on which commandment was the second greatest commandment in all the Bible. The, the school of Shammai, what they taught was that the second greatest commandment is when God said, be holy as I am holy, meaning be set apart, be unstained by sin, just as I am. So for them, when they took that law and they said, this is the, the second most important commandment. First, you have to love God with everything, and then you have to be holy. Uh, they, they translated that into being ceremonially clean. You can't do anything to defile yourself. You can't do anything to violate any law in any way. And so that whole, uh, that whole situation of what happens if your child falls into a pit on the Sabbath, their answer would be, you wait until sundown. At sundown, when, uh, when it now turns into the next day, because that's when you know, their, their calendar day flipped at sundown, that's when you go and help your child or, or your animal out of the pit. Even if your child is bleeding out, you leave him or her there, and wait until the next day where it's no longer Sabbath because you must be holy as God is holy. That was the, uh, the second greatest commandment to them. The school of Hallel, in contrast to the school of Shammai, the school of Hallel taught the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. They'd say, you're supposed to try to stay ceremonially clean and all that stuff, but that's all kind of a symbolic gesture and stuff. In this situation... This kid's health is dire and of utmost importance. You must go and love your neighbor. You must go and help this child who's in need. And so they said ceremonial cleanness was secondary and less important than loving your neighbor. And the school of Shammai pushed back on that. They said you're putting your neighbor over being holy like God. It's more important to be like God than to, than to deal with your neighbor. Your neighbor is a secondary issue. So the, the, the fighting would, would ensue between the two schools. Jesus asks to the lawyer, how do you read it? How do you interpret the law? What do you think 
you have to do to be saved. And the, the lawyer answers with the two greatest commandments, exposing his theological position. He is of the school of Hallel. Now, Jesus picks a side by saying, you have answered correctly. And that has drawn a certain line in the sand because uh, guess which side the Pharisees tended to be on? They tended to be more on the side of the school of Shammai. They, they were more uh, interested in being ceremonially clean rather than actually loving your neighbor. And they prioritized that way. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. He affirms that the school of Hallel in this situation was correct. And it sets up this interesting dynamic because Jesus is this famous prophet, healer, guy who can, uh, he can expel demons. He has incredible, unparalleled, heavenly wisdom. He's a celebrity. And what he has just done is he has publicly affirmed this lawyer's theology. So now the, the audience would be, uh, would be standing around saying like, wow, okay, these two are in agreement. This, this lawyer is legit, just like Jesus. Later in Jesus' life, in the last few days of his life, just uh, days before his crucifixion, uh, a Pharisee will question him, what are the two greatest commandments? It's the same test. And Jesus will say, it's love God, love your neighbor. And it'll, it'll be the same answer. So this test came uh, more than once for Jesus, and it was a common conversation topic in Israel. But to this lawyer, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And then he says, do this, and you will live. Do exactly what you said. You said all you have to do is love God and love your neighbor in order to have eternal life. That's how you're going to be saved. So do it, and you will live. Jesus affirms that that is how you can be saved. Do this, and you will live. That should end the conversation. The, the lawyer should be like, all right, yeah, I'm glad we agree. It is as I said. And then he should move on. But instead, you get verse 29. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? So that's an interesting thing. The lawyer is asking this to justify himself, meaning to really make it known without question that he is in the right, his theological position. Because even within the school of Hallel, there were different opinions on the definition of neighbor. There were different uh, ideas of who, who your neighbor was. So let me, let me show you why this happened. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Okay? There's this moment in, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, where the school of Hallel bases a lot of its theology. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. I am Yahweh, right? God says that always to, to cement a command in, uh, in his official will. He says like that, that's what I've said, I've spoken. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that was understood as basically the, the same idea just being rephrased. It's said twice, right? And because of that, the theology developed of who your neighbor was, because it says you shall not take vengeance on, or you shall not bear a grudge against whom? Sons of your own people. Sons of your own people. That means 
fellow Jews. This law was written to Israel, and he says, don't treat the sons of your own people like this. That's other Jews, other Israelites. So by thinking of it that way, you've ruled out the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. You've ruled out the Gentiles. But then questions would come up even about the nature of of what it means to be Jewish. Because they'd say, well, what if someone's a Jew by birth, by blood, but they, they turned away from the Jewish faith and they went into a false religion? So what if they're a non-practicing Jew? They're only a Jew by blood, but not by faith. So then, that's a son of my own people, but is that really a Jew? Is that, is that my brother or is that my sister? So then there would be a question on that. Or you could flip it. What if there's a Gentile who came and said, the God of Israel is the true God. And this Gentile, this non-Jewish person says, I want to be part of your faith. And so uh, this Gentile gets circumcised follows all the laws, and is now called a proselyte Jew, meaning he's, he's been uh, kind of unofficially you know, uh, thrown into the, the group because he's not really a Jew, but by faith, he believes the same things the Jews believe. So is that my neighbor? He worships the same God. He worships Yahweh, but he's not a son of my people. And then, of course, there's just the, the regular understanding of neighbor, which is the person next to you. That's what neighbor is, right? It's just the, the, the person over there. Couldn't a neighbor just mean the, the person that's right there next to you? Sure. But the problem for Israel would, would mean that uh, since they were under Roman occupation, the people next to them were Roman oppressors. So then, are you telling the Israelites to love their oppressors? When Israel was under Egyptian slavery, are they supposed to love the Egyptian slave masters? Are they supposed to love the Pharaoh who ordered their children to be killed? This issue was a raging controversy among the scribes and lawyers. They had to sift this stuff out. So this lawyer has an opinion on the issue, and he wants to justify himself. He wants to hear Jesus agree with him. He wants to hear Jesus acknowledge and affirm him to everyone. And so, he says, who is my neighbor? Tell us, Jesus, what exactly does it mean to be neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he just launches into a story, okay? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So he's telling a story. The story is a fictional story. It's a parable, meaning it, it, uh, it, it has a symbolic meaning at the end, a, a single symbolic meaning at the end, okay? Uh, he talks about this man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 14-mile journey. Uh, this is obviously a Jewish man. He's, uh, it, it, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho would be a path that's oftentimes called the path of blood because it's this tiny little road that's, uh, that's thin and winding, and, uh, and if you take it, especially at night, there are no street lamps. There, there are no lights outside, so you're walking through the desert in the pitch dark. Your best light would be the moon, and that just depends on what, uh, you know, what 
what the moon looks like on that night. But it's a thin, winding uh, road, pitch dark, through rocky terrain. And so it was known to be a perfect place to ambush people, which is why people would oftentimes travel in groups or just in the daytime or uh, for ver- with various other uh, protections, with weapons, etc. But this guy, he just goes with like zero safety precautions, okay? Uh, he, walks th- he walks the road, the path of blood, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and then they departed, leaving him half dead. And half dead... Uh, that, that doesn't mean just like he has 50% of his hit points left. It means that he looks like he's dead, but you'd have to go there and check to see if he's breathing or check to see if he has a pulse. It's like what you see in like TV movies and stuff. You know, someone looks dead, you have to go over there, and then they, they check him out like, he's alive, and everyone's all, all relieved. That's what the half-dead uh, expression means, Okay. Uh, and so Jesus says, there's this guy, he, he was walking down, he got robbed and beaten up, and he was left unconscious, bleeding, he appeared dead. And then you're going to get uh, three characters that will pass by, and this is called the rule of three whenever there's storytelling, right? They, uh, it's, whenever there's a rule of three, you have three characters, the third character is really where the punchline is, isn't it? Right? You go like a Russian and a Mexican and an American walk into a bar. The third guy is the punchline. You know that, and that's the storytelling device. And everyone's supposed to then expect that. So Jesus is going to do that. He's going to introduce three characters, and he's going to use the rule of three. And that, that third character is where the, the punchline of the joke is. Okay, so he's, uh, he says in verse 31, Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, the, the man on the ground, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the first two characters, they passed by. One is a priest, one is a Levite. Just so you know, Levites are, uh, are like this unofficial tribe of Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel and then there's this like 13th tribe, the, the tribe of Levi, because they are the, the tribe that, that takes care of all the religious duties at the temple and, and stuff like that. All the priests of Israel come from the tribe of Levi. So you have the tribe of Levi. Some of them are priests. The rest of them are just Levites, and they, they carry out certain other religious duties, but they're not priests. All priests are Levites. Not all Levites are priests, okay? Like All Cocker Spaniels are dogs, but not all dogs are Cocker Spaniels. You get the idea, right? Okay, all right. This priest sees this half-dead man on the ground from a distance. So he appears dead, and he passes by. Then a Levite does the same thing. Both of them are of the, the, the clergy. Why do they pass by? That just seems like a weird thing. And it could just be because Jesus told the story that way, but... There would be a reasoning behind it. Leviticus 21, verse 1. Leviticus 21, verse 1. Do we not have it? Don't have it. Sorry, okay, I'll I'll read it to you. Uh, It says, And Yahweh said to Moses, He said, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, etc. Okay, so the commandment there in Leviticus 21 is, A priest is not allowed to make himself unclean by touching dead bodies. Unless it's your close relative. If if it's one of your 
you know, uh, family members in your nuclear family, then, then that's okay because someone's got to take care of that body. But otherwise, you're not allowed to touch dead bodies. That was a, a way to uh, put in the minds of the Jews that death was an enemy. Death is not something we should be okay with. Death is something that God doesn't want any part of. He wants to undo that. He's going to work to get rid of death forever and ever. So, priests and Levites can't touch dead bodies. The priests and Levites see a body. It appears to be dead. What should they do? If they believed, oh, I need to love my neighbor as myself, then they should go check on this body and see, uh, see for certain, is this guy dead or not? But... They seem to be of the camp, the, the school of Shammai, where they say, be holy as I am holy. That's uh, my priority here. So I cannot defile myself. I don't want to go check that body because if he turns out to be dead, I will have made myself ceremonially unclean. So the, the priest is of the school of Shammai. He must stay holy. He passes by. And the Levite, same thing. Now to us, it seems obvious that that is the wrong move to make. Like, come on, you're not supposed to do that. You should go check on him. That's, that's just our natural instinct. But to the Jews, this was lawful. In fact, the Jews would say that the priest and the Levite did not sin. They did the right thing. There, were, uh, uh, there was a majority in the people of Israel that would have said, that is what you're supposed to do. Now, verse 33. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where this guy was, and when he saw the guy, he had compassion. So the Samaritan here, this is the third guy that comes in, right? Here's the punchline of the joke. A Samaritan walks up. A Samaritan is the most hated people by the Jews. Uh, you didn't have any other nation that was hated as much as the Samaritans. Samar Samaritans were understood as defectors and traitors, and there was, there was a whole lot of mixture on that. But this third guy has to be the punchline of the joke. This Samaritan comes up. He sees this, this body that looks like it's dead. It doesn't say that the Samaritan checked for a pulse or, or checked for his breathing or anything like that. He just uh, he saw ex the, exactly the same thing that the priest saw. He saw the exact same thing that the Levite saw. He saw what appeared to be a dead body. And it says he had compassion. Compassion, if you, if you look at the, the, the Greek word on that, means his bowels moved. He had a bowel movement is really what it says. Because that was actually, for our, we have an expression, you know, bowel movement, that's very different from their expression, right? He didn't see a dead body and then have a bowel movement. But he saw a dead body and his bowels moved. That means his stomach churned, his gut twisted, right? I think maybe that makes more sense to us, that like the, your insides... You know, like when you watch those videos on the internet where like some guy's skateboarding and he just lands wrong, his knee goes backwards, and you're like, oh, and then like your, your stomach just kind of turns. That's what that was. He sees this guy, and his stomach turns, and it, it's not just like he's grossed out. He's like, this guy needs help, and it affected him on the inside. So he decides he's going to help this guy. Verse 34, the Samaritan went to the body, to the man, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So, the, the, you know, this Samaritan, he goes to the man, he binds up his wounds, okay? You have to understand, binds up his wounds... 
is an expression that comes up several times of how God will deliver Israel, how God will save Israel. God will bind up your wounds. That's what it says. Psalm 147, Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 30. There are these moments where it says God will bind up your wounds, Israel. And that was understood as his salvation, his deliverance, his restoration. That's how he puts Israel on top of the world. So to use that language was curious. The Samaritan went to this, uh, this dying Jewish man and bound up his wounds. And then it says he poured oil and wine, which that could very much be medicinal, you know, sanitizing, etc. Sure. Except guess what priests and Levites used when they're making sacrifices at the temple? Oil and wine. Those were the, the liquid instruments that they would use. So the priests carrying out the religious duties for the whole country, the Levites assisting with that, they would use oil and wine in the sacrificial uh, rituals. They would do all of that. So Jesus is saying in, in this weird way, he's saying that the Samaritan is doing what God does. And the Samaritan is doing what the priests and Levites should be doing. And what the Samaritan did was the real sacrifice. The Samaritan places the man on his own animal, takes him to, uh, to an inn, ensures that the price is paid in full, guarantees that he's going to follow up on this. That's the real sacrifice. The Samaritan takes the Jewish man on a Jewish road to a Jewish inn in a Jewish country. Everyone hates him, and yet this guy has compassion. On a man who probably, on any other day, if he saw him, would hate him. The Samaritan is not trying to follow rules, is not thinking of a list of theological commandments, not trying to perform some kind of spiritual duty. He's just doing what was instinctive and natural because of who he is. He was moved to compassion. Verse 36, Jesus uh, asks the lawyer, which of these three guys, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Now, if you notice here, the surprising turn is that the Samaritan's not a punchline to a joke. He is the principle to the lesson. Jesus says, which of these three guys do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So again, instead of Jesus answering the lawyer's original question, which is, who is my neighbor? Do you notice Jesus didn't answer that? Instead, he told this story, and then he reverses it, and he asks, who was the one being a neighbor? Who proved himself to be a neighbor? And the lawyer, uh, the lawyer being a lawyer, he's a you know, Jewish religious scholar, he doesn't like Samaritans, but he was honest enough to answer the question properly. He picked the right guy out of the three. The Samaritan was the one that proved to be a neighbor. But you can also kind of feel the lawyer's reluctance because what he didn't say was the Samaritan. Throughout the entire story, Jesus kept calling this guy the Samaritan. But the lawyer wouldn't say, oh, the Samaritan is the hero. He didn't say that. He goes, ah, I guess that third guy, the one that showed him mercy. He wouldn't say the word Samaritan. So you can kind of feel a certain like a, a reluctance there. Now, people try to allegorize this, this parable a lot. You know, Samaritan uh, equals Christ, 
Right? The Samaritan is symbolic of Jesus. The inn is symbolic of the church, etc. Don't do that. Okay? We, we don't need to allegorize things. The meaning is, is plainly clear. The characters in the story had a clear meaning to the original audience, and that's what we need to attach to. The priest and the Levite, did they love this guy? No. The Samaritan did. And love is not a series of commands and rituals to be followed. It's not just a whole bunch of external behavior or religious rites. It's compassion. Something inside you just turns when you see someone in need. It's, it's concern, it's effort, it's sacrifice, it's commitment, it's following up, it's making sure, it's, it's paying for it all. I think it used to bother me that uh, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, this is what a neighbor is. He just says, go and be a neighbor. Go be like the Samaritan. But he never, he never defined what a neighbor was. And I sat there like, you know, frustrated about that. But neighbor, as Jesus frames it, is anyone, regardless of race or religion or nationality. Under this paradigm, your Roman oppressor, your Egyptian slave master, and the Samaritan is your neighbor. Your enemy is your neighbor. And that's very consistent with how Jesus calls people to love their enemies. Jesus shrugs off the whole who is my neighbor discussion because it's stupid to him, right? It's like the person next to you is the neighbor. You know it. You naturally know it. I told the story. Who do you think was the neighbor? You know it. So he kind of shrugs off the who is my neighbor discussion. He goes back to the, he answers the original question. The original question, if you remember way back in the first paragraph, was what must I do to be saved? Well, you have to love God and love your neighbor, And then the guy's like, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes, look, you know, and go and do likewise. Go do like what this Samaritan in the story did. Go love like that. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor. And your neighbor could be anyone. It could be your your enemy. So Jesus kind of redirects the answer to to, uh, respond to, what must I do to be saved. What, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You have to love God, love your neighbor. Not by following a bunch of commands, but by being moved with compassion on the inside. Right? The commands and things, that should be just like the extra stuff that, that naturally happens. But internally, there should be compassion. The, the word compassion in English means to suffer with. Right? Even when you have an enemy... When you have compassion on your enemy, that means that you kind of understand why your enemy is acting the way that your enemy is acting like. You don't argue what it means to, to love. You don't argue about who, it, uh, who is a neighbor. Those are all just big theological arguments and excuses from doing the work. Right? It's like, don't sit there asking me, what, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to be a neighbor? Just go do it. Stop asking the questions so that you can find ways to get out of it. Just go do it. It's not a whole bunch of rules. You see someone in need, your gut should turn and ache for them, and you go and you invest in them, and you sacrifice, and you, and you, you, you put your effort into that. Now, here's the meta problem, if you, if you kind of stand back a little bit. Jesus has just said, if you love God completely with all that you are, heart, soul, mind, strength, if you love God completely, and you love your neighbor just like this, then you're saved, right? 
Jesus affirms it. He says, yes, you can be saved if you just love God, love your neighbor. Well, what's the problem with that? I think it's the fact that the lawyer knows exactly what you know. If Jesus came here and said, okay, I want you to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor just like the Samaritan did, I think you'd say, well, I can do that sometimes, but I can't do that all the time. Like, there will be days where I mess up. There will be days where I fall short. And that's right. Because, you know, if you ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The premise of that answer is, what must I do? What work should I perform? And Jesus then says, well, you just have to be perfect. You say, well, I can't. And he says, that's right. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. You can't. So there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. There's nothing you can do to be saved. You have to know that you can't. You have nothing to offer, nothing to stand on. And so you just have to repent. You have to own up to the fact that you fall short, that you are a lawbreaker, that you are a sinner. And you come before the Lord and you just plead for mercy, not for reward. You say, God, save me because I could not get there myself. So you repent, you trust in Jesus. You'll, you'll have nothing to boast about. You'll only have Christ to stand on because he does all the work. Well, this is the, the, this big lesson that kind of shows you that Jesus is, is taking the, the scribe, the, the lawyer, in, into battle and saying, like, you think it's a bunch of commandments. You think it's a bunch of theological corners that you have to define. It's not that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just do it. Don't sit there trying to figure out when it does apply and doesn't apply. It always applies. And then he gets into, into two shorter instances. The, sec- the second one is now practical distractions versus personal devotion. Also a very well-known passage. Look at verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So this is a tiny little story, but Luke intentionally introduces us to these two sisters, uh, Mary and Martha, who also, by the way, you'll find out in other parts of scripture, have a brother named Lazarus, whom Jesus will uh, raise from the dead in John chapter 11. So uh, the reason why I'm, uh, I'm putting that here and the reason why Luke even names these women and stuff is because they are a believing family. It seems like their parents are not alive or at least not around. And so it's, it's Martha and Mary and, uh, and Lazarus. They are a believing family. They become very beloved friends of Jesus. And so here's like kind of the introduction to them uh, in chapter 10 of Luke. But we get a good lesson uh, around this moment here between Martha and Mary. And it's really not too hard to figure out, right? If you, you read it and if you had to prepare a Bible study on this, it, w- it wouldn't be hard to, to divine the, the major lesson here, right? Jesus was teaching, and while that was happening, Martha was serving, which probably meant she was preparing food and or she was preparing lodging. 
because Jesus had an entourage of, you know, 70 disciples and stuff. You have to prepare a lot of beds, room for those that are going to stay in your house. She has to feed them, all that kind of stuff. So she's doing all of that, and apparently she's doing it alone. She's all by herself trying to create enough uh, preparations and hospitality for the multitude that is around Jesus. And so uh, why is she doing that alone? Well, it's because her sister Mary is not helping at all. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to Jesus teach. And that's, that's new, by the way. Judaism, rabbis didn't allow women to, uh, to sit you know, in front of them and, uh, while they t- taught. Women had to sit in the back in like an area for women, in a, s- a separated area. But Jesus didn't seem to, to mind that at all. He's like, no, 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 this is, this is right. The, the proper role in Judaism was for women to be serving to be setting up the the home and all that stuff, uh, to be sitting in the back. And yet Jesus welcomes Mary and and very much is glad that she's sitting there being taught and discipled. Now Martha complains, Lord, don't you care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Like who talks to Jesus like that, right? Who talks? The first thing she asks is, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care about me? Like, who would ask Jesus that, right? That's the, that's the kind of thing that when you get to heaven, you see Martha there, you're just going to, like, remember that time you asked if Jesus cared about you, right? Stupid question. But she didn't know that at the time. She, she, she's just being, you know, she's being herself, and she didn't know he's going to die on a cross, suffer, die, all that. She didn't know that stuff yet, okay? But she also, uh, if you realize, she's interrupting a sermon, this grinds my gears, okay? Jesus is teaching, and he's not done teaching yet, right? It doesn't say, and after he was finished teaching, Martha came up and said. No, she, he's, he is teaching. It's ongoing. And then she comes up, and she's like, uh, hold on, hold on, pause. So now the sermon comes to a pause, and she's like, Jesus, Lord, don't you care that I'm like doing all this stuff, and Mary's not even helping? Tell her to help me. Lord, right? Do what I say, master, right? That's what, that's what Martha's doing. So you can see the bravado. I like her personality, but, uh, but she's interrupting the sermon, uh, and so I'm still trying to forgive her on that. Jesus is teaching. He's not done yet. Martha interrupts. He says, you know, what, what about Mary and all that stuff? And the key is in verse 40. If we can get verse 40 back, back up there, it says uh, in verse 40 that Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted. It didn't say, but Martha was so faithful because she was serving so much. It says she was distracted. What that means is she was supposed to be doing something else. She, the, the serving thing was coming in in a negative way to what she should have been doing. And it's very obvious what she should have been doing because Jesus kind of points it out. Mary chose the good portion. She chose the right thing that she should be doing. She's sitting at the feet of of Jesus, learning from him. Mary understood that being with Jesus, spending time with Jesus, the gospel, hearing the word was more important than preparing lunch. Preparing food, absolutely legitimate, necessary, very appreciated service throughout the whole testimony of the Bible. But in place of worship, instead of 
discipleship, spending time with the Lord, worshiping and hearing the word. If you, if you go to service and, and doing your serving thing, instead of focusing and listening when it's time to listen, it's a distraction. And it is not the good portion. So when you have your priorities out of order, you have your attitude that goes out of order. So Martha's getting mad at Mary. She's like, you know, Jesus, look at this. Mary is listening to you instead of helping me cook. Her attitude gets out of order. It doesn't have to just be about food either, right? It's anything that just distracts you from loving Jesus, distracts you from hearing his word. It could be as simple as like, you know, it could be uh, when you're, if, if you're at home and you're, you're watching service because you're, you're sick and so you couldn't make it. But then while you're watching, you're also kind of on the internet. Or you're in service and you're on your phone checking the latest stats or whatever. Uh, you ever notice at the end of, uh, of every sermon, we wait a really, really long time before that closing prayer actually kicks off, right? We go, let's close in prayer. And then like good two minutes later, Maybe we start praying. Why do we wait that long? Because we give time for the band to come up, get their instruments, you know, turned on and everything, and then we're ready to go. Because we don't have them walk up while we're praying. Prayer is not transition time. It's not like, oh, I got an idea. We'll pray so that you guys can, can get up here, and then when everyone opens their eyes, boom, you're there. They'll be like, how did that happen? I didn't, I didn't even see that. It's not magic time to, to facilitate transition. It's not like, oh, they're just praying, so we'll walk up and start, you know, like, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Prayer time is prayer time. That's where we focus on the Lord. So when we say, let's close in prayer, we give time for the band to walk up. So if you see a band member sitting in the back, that guy's selfish. He makes you wait a long time. But you get the idea. Like, we, we try to prioritize that we can focus when we need to focus. When it's time to be discipled, when it's time to spend time with the Lord, we spend time with the Lord. We focus on that. We don't treat prayer time as like just, oh, well, I'll just start looking over stuff and, you know, get my instrument. That's not it. Even, even our, our food, we don't want our food being prepared during service. People shouldn't skip service to go prepare food, right? If anything, we'll just start lunch later. That's fine. Worst thing that'll happen is you'll go outside and have a conversation before you get your food. But see, it's a very practical move to, to, uh, to have everyone just kind of use service time, sermon time, song time to go do something else so that we can be more efficient, more productive. And the only thing that we're sacrificing is spending time with Jesus. That is not choosing the good portion. Martha thinks her service is more important than spending time with Jesus, being discipled by him, hearing his word. And so Jesus rebukes her. He says, Martha, Martha. Why did he say that name? Because he loves her. He doesn't say, hey, what's your problem? He says, Martha, Martha. And he's rebuking her affectionately, lovingly, but he is rebuking her. He cares for her. And he lets her, her know that if you focus on practical distractions of things around you, instead of focusing on your personal devotion to Jesus and his word, you'll find yourself anxious and worried, troubled and bothered about many things. 
That's precisely the description of Martha. She was distracted with much serving, and so she was anxious and troubled about many things, which is the same translation as worried and bothered about many things. Jesus didn't panic about that stuff. If he didn't get to eat, he didn't get to eat. And he didn't sweat it. He went 40 days without eating because he felt like he wanted to spend time with God. One thing is necessary, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear his word, obey his word. Everything else is, is icing on the cake. Everything else we get to enjoy, and we're so glad we get to enjoy it, but it's really, that's, that's all optional stuff. Your serving should never take you away from spending time with Jesus, with worship, with being discipled by his word. Then you get this, this third contrast between, between ritualism and relationship. And uh, it's this idea of reciting prayers like they're chants or praying like you're relying on God as his child. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. So uh, it's this very frequent act that Jewish and Christian people encounter in their faith, which is prayer, right? That's a normal thing that you see in Jewish worship services and in Christian worship services. There's prayer. Uh, And I love that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray uh, as John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. They, They asked that because Jewish prayers expressed their theology. It was a big deal. And so Uh, Their prayers were written down and memorized and recited. Hundreds of prayers. There were prayers for everything. Prayer to give thanks for good weather. Prayer uh, to to find a good spouse. Prayers that uh, that your harvest would go well. Prayers for, like older Jewish men would pray uh, and give thanks for being able to urinate without pain. There were all these sorts of prayers that were written down and recited. They all understood them, memorized them, and that's, uh, that's what the disciples are asking for. Teach us to pray. R- write down a prayer for us so that we can memorize it and recite it. And what Jesus is going to give them is not a prayer to memorize and recite, even though you can. It's not a sin if you do. Uh, it's, it's called the Lord's Prayer. That's oftentimes what we refer to it as. But this isn't something that you're supposed to just memorize this, recite this, and that'll do the trick. It's not that. This is a lesson on prayer, and so he gives you kind of a, uh, an example that serves as a topical index of things to pray about. So, verse 2, Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." Right? That's, that's what Jesus teaches uh, here, and it's also recorded in Matthew 6. The sermon on Matthew 6 goes into much greater detail, and then there's a whole series that we have called the Lord's Prayer, and that goes into, into uh, too much detail on this whole thing. But uh, this prayer is recorded here in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6, and then it, it, it's never recorded ever again in the rest of the Bible. Okay? It only shows up here and in Matthew 6, and they're describing the same, same moment where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. When that happens, you'd think if, he's, if they're supposed to memorize this and recite it all the time, that it would come up in the Bible. And because the New Testament has many moments where it says, here's a prayer, 
and, you know, and, and the, the author will pray and stuff, and, and it'll be written out. But none of those prayers are this prayer, because this was not taught by Jesus in order to be memorized and recited as a magic spell, some kind of a chant that if you say this this many times a day, that it'll, it'll uh, amount to a blessing. That's not how prayer works. It'd be nice to have prayers that, that did that. If you just say these words enough times, then you can accrue blessing. It'd be nice to do that, uh, you know, to have prayers that we recite. And in fact, the, the, uh, the desire and the instinct to have these recited prayers is very, very strong in all of us. If you don't believe me, finish this sentence. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, right? Or let's say it's right before a meal. You say, and thank you for this food or meal, right? Uh, and then you say, bless it to our bodies, right? And bless the hands that made it. Why does everybody know these words? Why does everybody know these words? And then everyone adds their own little touch-up, like, thank you for this wonderful time, or please don't let us get coronavirus, or whatever, right? Everybody's got their little, like, touch-up add-ons, this is my, my coda at the end. Jesus, instead, uh, is teaching us the kinds of things to pray. He's not giving us magic words to recite. It's an index of topics. So if you just kind of look at like each of the independent clauses, Father, right? Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father, not as some distant deity or some malevolent God or some force of nature. He is our Father. He is personal and He is familial with us. Hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches us to pray with reverence, understanding God's holiness and His greatness and His power and His goodness. Your kingdom come. Jesus teaches us to pray for God's rulership, his kingdom, his rulership. For his will, his rulership, not ours, to be done in us and in our society, in our world. Give us each day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to pray for God to meet our needs and for us to depend on him as provider and to understand him as provider, even though we work to provide. Forgive us our sins. Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness, just as we forgive others. And, uh, and for clarity, he's already talking to believers, people who can, who can call God Father, right? They have a, a familial relationship with him. They're saved already. So why do you have to pray for forgiveness if you're already forgiven? Well, it's not that you have to keep being forgiven because your, your, uh, your salvation has an expiration date if you don't keep renewing it. It's not like that. Uh, you, you know you're forgiven of your sins, but you, you do constantly ask God to forgive you when you sin. Why? Well, think of it like this. Uh, when you marry someone, you are now in a relationship where you're like, I'm with you through uh, rich or poor, sickness and health, you know, thick or thin. I'm with you no matter what. Our relationship will never break as long as we're both alive. Okay? So then, let's say one of you is just a jerk to the other and says some mean things, like you're a, you're a horrible person. You say something mean or, or, uh, or you hang up on them or you yell at them or something like that. Why would you have to apologize? Why? Your relationship isn't threatened. Your relationship can't be broken. And if you're like, I don't need to apologize. We're married, so what, what do I need to say sorry for? You know, it's not like, it's not like she's allowed to leave me or he's allowed to, to go away. 
that wouldn't be the case, right? Why would you apologize in those moments? You'd, you'd apologize and you'd ask for forgiveness because the relationship was damaged, right? There was, there was some damage to the intimacy. There was damage to the fellowship. Even though the relationship is still in place, you're still married and you're going to stay married, there was like hurt feelings. So you apologize, you ask for forgiveness in order to restore fellowship. And that's what that is with, uh, you know, uh, asking God, forgive us our sins, just like we're forgiving everyone else. Right? Like, it, it's not a, a continual asking for salvation all the time because my salvation ran out. It's not that. It's if, if I have hurt you or if I have upset you or if I've, uh, if I've fallen short in some way, forgive me and let's restore fellowship. Let's be close. Lead us not into temptation. Right? Jesus teaches us to pray that God would protect us spiritually and, and push us in a good direction. God never tempts anyone, says James 1. But this asks God not to lead us toward any kind of a situation, a trial, where we would fall into sin. Like if, if, if he knows that there's a situation like that coming up, steer us away from that. Don't lead us that way. Because we do that ourselves. We lead ourselves to temptation all the time. So we, just, we ask God, like, help us to, to avoid these things. So Jesus gives us this topical index of things to pray about and how to pray and all that kind of stuff. It's not meant to be a, a memorized, recited chant. That if you say it enough times, you get blessed. It's, uh, this, it's a model to help you understand how prayer should work and the things you should pray about. And he further cements the relational nature of prayer rather than the ritualistic recitations by giving two metaphors. First one is, is in verses 5 through 8. It says in Luke 11, verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend? Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And the friend will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The idea there is simple. Someone will give you what you want if you're just asking persistently, boldly, with impudence. That just means bold insensitivity, like even improperly. You know, uh, it, it's, it's not saying that you, you should be rude when you pray, but it's just saying that that boldness, that, that courage to ask and the urgency and the emphasis of asking, that persuades people. So wouldn't that means something to God. When you're asking God with impudence, with urgency, with emphasis, when you're asking God that boldly, won't God, who is a loving father, who's never tired, never busy, never uninterested in you, when you ask God who delights in giving to you, won't he give it to you? Of course he will. And then the second metaphor, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, and I tell you, uh, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And the idea is simple. The, uh, the idea is uh, even 
everyone, even evil people, everybody, knows how to give good gifts to their kids. And uh, I, I like that Jesus actually sneaks that in there in verse 13. Let's keep 13 up there. It says, if you then, who are evil, and he's talking to his disciples. He's teaching them to pray, right? And he's like, and when you guys ask, because you're evil, when you guys pray, you know, and he just, he just throws that in there. Um, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your, uh, to your children, even evil people know how to give good gifts. That doesn't mean they always do, but they know how to. They know what that is. If your kid asks for food, you don't give him a grenade, right? That's the ridiculousness of, of what he's saying. He's like, why would God give you something bad when you're asking for something good, right? When you say, give me something I need, a father, a father should give that to you. That's what a father wants to do. If everyone knows how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will a loving father give his children what they need? And his point is that prayer is not about reciting the right words and memorizing the stuff. It's a relationship. It's, it's the relationship of a child to the Heavenly Father. It breaks down. You can, you can kind of just approach it in these three real easy categories, right? Who you are, what you want, how you ask. Who you are, what you want, how you ask, okay? So, who you are. You are a child of God. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You're a child of a perfectly good, perfectly loving father. And if you get that, if you go, I'm his child. I'm not, I'm not a business partner trying to ask to make a deal. I'm not a stranger coming to try to impress him. I'm his child. He loves me. If you understand that, that reframes everything. A child doesn't need to worry about it, whether or not he's earned the right to ask dad for something. Right? Not, a, not if your dad is good and loving. If, if your dad is good and loving, if he's perfectly good and loving, you don't have to wonder whether or not you qualify to ask. I have a son. My son is 12 years old. And my son never wonders whether or not he has the right to ask me something. Never. He constantly asks me for McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, in and out Raising Cane's. Constantly. Every Sunday, I guarantee you, after service, he'll ask for Raising Cane's. And there's like this fearlessness, right? Because if anyone else were to ask me that frequently, that constantly, that impudently, we would not be friends anymore. But my son is my son. And he's figured out that he can ask his dad for anything, anytime. He doesn't do that with other people. He sees chips on the table. He goes, Dad, can I have some chips? I'm hungry. And I say, those aren't mine. That's, I don't know, it's anyone. That's, that's Mary's. Go ask her. He won't. He'll be like, oh, I'm not hungry. Just walk away. I'm like, you, you just said. But he won't. Because he's, he's, he gets this, like, fear. Like, he doesn't want to ask anyone anything, you know? If I'm like, hey, go get a refill, you know, at the, uh, at the cashier. Like, we're sitting in McDonald's. Go get a refill, please. Go ask for a refill. He doesn't want to do that. He'll ask me for anything, and he doesn't want to ask anyone else for anything. And it doesn't bother, uh, it doesn't bother me that he asks because he's my child, right? The connection to him is that strong. Anyone else asked, like in, uh, when he was two years old, 
middle of the night, come over, you know, come over to me. I'm like at my desk, and he's like, water, water. And I'm like, wow, oh, whatever. And then I go over and I get him water. Here you go, son. You know, I don't, it's not a big deal, right? If, any, if in the middle of the night, my wife, Christine, just water, water. I'm like, it's downstairs. <laughs> you got this. You're an adult. Even when uh, my son asks for bad things, like if he wants, uh, you know, when he, when he wants McDonald's or when he wants candy or something, like, even then I still want to give it to him. I don't, I don't often. Sometimes I do, but sometimes I don't. You know, like, you kind of have to weigh it and you say, for his well-being, no. Or, ah, you know, like, it's okay right now. But you weigh it out. My son also asks me because he knows he needs help especially when he was younger. The, you know, the older he gets, he needs less help, right? He becomes more independent. But when he was, when he was very young, uh, like when he, when he was one year old, he'd, he'd get up in his crib, and uh, you know, I'd be awake, and he'd just make eye contact with me. He'd just go up, up. So then I have to walk over to his crib, and I have to pick him up. He'd wait for me. He, he knows he needs help. In other occasions, uh, he'd go poo-poo, poo-poo, and then I'd have to clean him up. That was last week. But, he, you know, he asks for help when he needs help, right? If you know you're a child of God, there is a boldness that comes, a fearlessness to ask, because you can be that honest. And God can say no, but you can ask. That's who you are. What you want. Let's talk about that, what you want. Well, sometimes a child asks for good things, sometimes... Uh, a child asks for bad things. When a child asks for food, that's good. When a child asks for a knife, that's bad. You can understand when it's, when it's good or bad. If, if my son actually got everything he, he'd asked for, uh, he would ruin his life. That's how it is for all of us. If you get everything that you want, you'll ruin your life. In fact, we have a word for people who get everything that they want. They're spoiled. Right? Something went wrong. They got everything that they wanted. It, it's extremely scary to, to get everything you want. If we got everything we asked for, we'd ruin ourselves. Everyone would be rich, which means no one is rich anymore. What you pray for, what you want, that really starts to expose what you value. Which is why Jesus says, uh, if you then, who are evil because people are evil, we are tempted to ask for evil things, wrong things, harmful things, selfish things, right? There, I mean, I'll just fully admit, when I was younger, there were times where I just prayed, God, please kill that person, you know? I hate this guy at high school or whatever, you know? I'd, please ruin this person's life. There were times I'd pray stuff like that. If we all got what we want, the, the world would be just a the field of destruction. Jesus says, ask God uh, for his kingdom, his rulership to come, for God's will to be done. Pray for that. That's what you should pray for. That's what you should want, for your needs to be met, for you to be forgiven, for your intimacy with God to be restored. Right? That's what you should want, to avoid temptations to evil. Don't pray for the evil thing that, uh, that you want, like, God, let me have like, all the boyfriends or girlfriends that I want. Let me have all the money that I want. Let me have all the stuff that my sinful desire craves. Don't pray for those things. Ask for the things that are good for you. Ask for godly things. Ask for the Holy Spirit, right? Why would, why would God not give you the Holy Spirit if you ask for the Holy Spirit? Ask for things that come 
that, you know, that, that come with the Holy Spirit. Uh, ask for generosity in your heart so that you can be generous. Ask for wisdom. Ask for thankfulness. Ask for humility. Ask for conviction. Ask for perseverance. Ask for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22, 23. God wants to give you those things. Ask for these things as his child. Ask with impudence, boldness. Because he loves you and he delights in giving to you. Prayer, then, is, is not a way to make God give us what we want. Because we want evil things by nature. Prayer is a way for God to make us into what he wants. We ask him to make us godly, he makes us godly. If you pray correctly, it'll maintain that relationship where you are God's servant, not the other way around. Right? You pray so that you will be God's servant, not the other way around. So that's who you are and what you want, and then very simply how you ask, with impudence, with urgency, right? Don't be rude. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be irreverent in that way, but, but you can be bold and you can be honest and sincere like a child to a father. And pray with great patience because prayer isn't always answered uh, as instantly as a text message. Some things are answered after much time, even sometimes after your lifetime. But that's how you ask. You ask with, with, with humility as a servant. All of this really exposes Jesus' uh, truer definition of, of faith. And it's apart from religion or religiousness. right? People can be very churchy. Can, people can be very synagogue-y or whatever they would say in, in Israel. They can act very pious, very religious. They could do all the stuff. And you can come to church and you can say, well, I sang all the songs and I listened to all the sermons and I went to all the prayer meetings. You know, I, I, uh, I served on this team. I, I played the instrument and I, you know, I went to some uh, mission trip or something. And you can say, you say, I did all this stuff, but Jesus is targeting something different. He's like, it's not about the actions you perform. I mean, that's not the solution there. It's the relationship you have. How do you love your neighbor? There's got to be a, a moving of the gut, moved with compassion. How do, you, how do you approach the Lord? There's got to be a wonder and an awe and a fascination to just sit at the feet of Jesus and say, I love this, and to absorb his word because that's what drives you. And there's got to be a sense of, of reliance and dependence and crying out to God. Not like, oh, what if, what if I don't have something to bargain with? Not like that. But you just say, Father, give me what I need. Do this. No one else can help me but you. Jesus is undoing the religiousness that the Jews understood. They thought you just follow commandments you do your, your uh, pious service, and then you recite those prayers. And Jesus says, no, it's not the rituals. It's the relationship. You love God. You love your neighbor. You're a child. You sit in wonder, and you love Jesus. I think even here, it can be so easy to fake our faith. 
and just put on the external. But Jesus teaches us to be transformed on the inside, to make it about that relationship. Love God, love your neighbor. Do this and you'll live. Will you do it perfectly? No. You'll fall short. And so you repent and you say, God, forgive us our sins. And he will. He's your father. You're his child. You sit and wonder. You love him. You love each other. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for these kinds of clarifiers, these contrasts that present to us a clearer understanding of what it means to worship you, to be saved. There are many of us, Lord, who, who think that we should just come to church and try to be good enough. We'll always fall short. Instead, Lord, we pray that we would just have the right heart internally, be moved to compassion for one another, to really be fascinated by you and to rely on you like a child because we are your children. God, we pray that you would do that work in us. We need help with it because the events of our lives, the disappointments, the failures, the way that people have, have hurt us make us skeptical that it's possible to approach a perfectly loving God, a perfectly good God, as if he's our father. We pray, Lord, that you would breed in us a confidence, a boldness, an impudence to know that we belong to you and you love us and you're, you delight in us. You're thrilled to have us. You rejoice over the fact that our names are written in heaven because we come to you pleading for mercy, not striking a deal. And in doing that, Lord, make us bolder in knowing that we can ask you for anything because we're your children and we'll trust that you'll give us only what's good. And we pray that we would be more and more fascinated to just sit at your feet and not get caught up in the whole serving thing. We serve because it's an outpouring of how much we love you, not a substitute. And we pray that as we do that, we would understand your love for us, how you were moved to compassion for us. And so we too want to be moved to compassion for others. Bless this church, Lord. Disciple us, teach us, grow us, mature us that way so that our faith is not something that's just external behavior, but it's a true internal relationship of loving you and loving each other. Though imperfectly, still covered by the work of Jesus, who has done all the work for us to save us so that we can have life. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.